0: Hello and welcome to the show. And yes, 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 I'm sorry it's been a while, but I'm back and still here talking to some of the best and brightest products and product-related thought leaders and practitioners I can find in the world to help inspire all of us to make great products, great product teams, and great product companies. If that sounds like the sort of thing that floats your boat, why not pop over to onenightinproduct.com where you can check out all of my old episodes, sign up for the newsletter, join the Slack community, and maybe even attend some of our networking calls so you can meet some cool new people and start talking about me behind my back. That's one night in product.com and make sure to bring your friends as well. On tonight's episode, we're talking all about product portfolio management and product operations. Two things that my guest says are completely and utterly intertwined and you can't be good at one if you aren't good at the other. We also consider how many products you even need to have to have a portfolio and some of the ways that product operations can really be a strategic enabler for your organisation and not just a bunch of assistants doing all the work that the product managers don't want to do. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Becky Flint. Becky's a product and product ops professional turned company founder and CEO who says she started out working in medicine, giving her excellent insight into diagnosing problems, but also preventing them in the first place. Of course, we product people never have problems. Becky's the CEO of Dragon Boat, a company in which she's paddling hard to help product teams make sense of their roadmaps and bring order to their product portfolio. I want us all to know that there's a way for product organizations to deliver both business and user outcomes faster and move away from fluffy visions. Although, based on my experience of company visions, I'll take a fluffy one any day of the week. Hi, Becky. How are you tonight?
1: Hey, well, thanks for having me, Jason.
0: The problem is good to have you here and I'm looking forward, I know you've got opinions on all this product management stuff, so I'm looking forward to digging into those and maybe get some hot takes out as well. But first things first, you are the founder and CEO of Dragon Boat, as just mentioned. But just for those who haven't heard, what problems does Dragon Boat solve for the world?
1: Yeah, a great question the start of a Dragon Ball really is to solve a problem in terms of how to run a product organization now I would almost say not just a product organization how to run products that drive business and uh, you know career wise I grew up in PayPal and I was a part of the you know you can call it the first product ops person before the term was really invented I was a global expansion take PayPal to different countries actually UK and in pretty much everywhere from four countries to everywhere. As a part of the process, we realized that product drives business, product is hard to build, there's dependencies on engineering, dependency on each other. So we were stepping on each other all over the place, and, and then we couldn't figure out how to achieve business outcome faster, how we can work across different teams, how do we operationalize a strategy and a vision? So, I built internal toolings and process and portfolio management at PayPal. And then later on, went on to a few other companies from unicorns to startups to company to IPO. They all experienced the same thing and I ultimately realized that product management is not well understood, let alone portfolio management, let alone you know, how to operationalize the strategy. So, that's why there's no tooling. And uh, I became sort of the proxy of tooling being brought in almost like a consultant versus like a full time employee. And ultimately start Dragon to solve the problem. So today, tell you some fun story. In this, it's a winter break. I went out, uh, you know, to meet families. We work around the corners. I saw the bank. I said, "Oh wow, that's our customer, right? One of the top five banks." And then I, you know, go to in front of uh, my friend's driveway. They got a new car. That's you know one of the best car companies in the world. That's our customer. And I watch TV. That was like so like we are like now really impacting. We were just did a fun exercise, you know our customers to add up their revenues it's uh, almost it's a 681 billion. Wow. So that was really cool because we don't look at the companies as a number of product managers. So we look at the companies as uh, customers to say how much our product customers are impacting the business and obviously the customer that enable their business. So that's the story of Dragon Ball. Um, it really is to help product teams doing product management as the way product management should be and at scale
0: but that's interesting though talking about that scale and also the amount of revenue that the companies that you that you work for effectively or that, that buy your services by your platform that they're drive presumably is being driven in, at least in part through product although i guess with a bank also some of that's not through product too but like you know you're still hopefully contributing a lot but does that really mean that Dragon Boat is a tool for big companies, or is it also got something for your smaller companies? Like You talk about portfolios a lot, right? So if I'm a small startup, early stage, my portfolio is just one product, right? Like, Have you still got something to offer at that sort of scale?
1: Um, 100%. So there's a concept called one product portfolio. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily think that way, right? So people tend to think about portfolio of a product means different things. When it comes to software and the digital, it's a one product portfolio. We all know like, hey, let's just say this podcast product we're using right now, right? So this, you know, it it, it is one product, right? You log in, use it. But you think about it, how many product managers in that area? You have a registration, you have, there's a different personas used for different jobs. So when it comes to software, digital product, a lot of times you have a product bundle. The product bundle is actually multiple products. Multiple products being used for different personas solving different problems. Number one, you can have a different price tiers. Guess what? That's a different product, right? So even if for your startup company, typically a lot of times the startup companies say, "Hey, I'm just gonna use a, you know, spreadsheets or whatever to manage that." We have a, a lot of startup companies as well. They have founders that are more, more. Uh, I would say they're smarter, right? So when you have the right tool to make a decision you just make a decision faster and better versus say, I'm going to save whatever, $100, $200 or something. And actually you end up wasting and spending way more time. So example, um, one of our customers is one single person PM, right? So she's the head of the product, but the company was struggling. because so you have a lot of stuff to do. They, you know, they, get, they get to product market fit. And then so they're struggling to explain to everyone why. And so to the point where she was almost fired by the board. Luckily, her uh, advisor to say, hey, you know, you should check out on Dragon Ball and help you. Not that you're not strategic, you cannot articulate strategy to others. So then they brought Dragamo in and really helped to lay out strategy and goals and themes and how you think about it today and how your resource, the product decision are made. And then the next board meeting, the board said, hey, talk to the advisor. What did you do? Like, she's like a rock star. She knows what she's... <laughs> it's not like she doesn't know. She does not have a means to articulate it on quote-unquote paper so you can see different lenses or decisions are making it. So to your point, in my career, I obviously grew up at PayPal when later on went into tens of thousands of people. Later on, went to 2,000 people company, 300 people company, company less than 100 people were helped them to build product in the first place. There wasn't even any product manager when I started if they all have the same need, which is how do you operate product, regardless of one person or, or you know ten thousand, in a way that best practice prevail, which is you run all facets of your product portfolio, different goals portfolio. You have to make trade offs and and being able to make decisions, articulate your decision, getting input on your decision in a way that's understood. That's that's what Dragon Ball is about.
0: Well, I'm, you know, obviously all about basically everything that you've just said, and I think it's important. And I think we'll probably both agree on quite a lot of what we think makes a good product manager. But I'm curious about that kind of articulation point, right? Because, and with the caveat that I've never used Dragon Boat, so I don't know. Maybe I should go and use it after this just to find out. Yeah, this is like a live sale, live sales call. But (laughs) we should talk. yeah, Yeah. Anyway, we'll see. But the thing that I find curious about that is like, I can understand putting all of my goals and aligning strategies, making trade-offs in a tool, representing that visually, for example, like in a roadmap or some kind of portfolio plan or something like that. But actually articulating a strategy, is that's a very sort of soft skill thing, right? I need to have a way, I need to have the ability to storytell. I need to have the ability to represent a vision and a strategy and, and kind of do that in a way that you know, aside from things like LLMs, for example, you might say is that's still a people problem. So how does the tool specifically enable that kind of articulation of of, of a strategy other than just enabling you to put it all in one place?
1: Right. So I have two uh, facets for that. So first one is when you make a product decision, there's a thought process, right?
0: Oh, you'd be surprised.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Hopefully, right. So there's emotion, obviously. (laughs) So the thought process typically will be something around a business, the goals, the strategies, the customers, the revenue, and where the state of the things. So all these moving pieces, it needs to be there because not only you will make that thought process, other people need to understand your thought process. the so most product managers, leaders, and individual contributors facing the same challenge to tell people, why not this? Why this? Right? Yep. So we have to be able to not defend. You have to explain to people because you have to defend to yourself. Like, why this? Not this. So that thought process is a framework, which is a product portfolio management, a product strategy, product, you know. So that's something that we build to support that. That's number one. Number two is that it's communication strategy include the audience is different. CEO wants to know different things versus your CEO and board is very similar. Your sales leaders and, and your, your customer success leader is going to be something. Your sales team, your engineering, like everyone needs a different set of information that is a slicing and dicing the information and maybe abstracts the the data. And that is something that we also need to make sure we consider that. So that's the second part. The third part, most people haven't really realized this. When you are a product manager, you manage your product and you also have to manage your work. People mix these two things together. People say, oh, you can do in JIRA. Why can't you do JIRA? JIRA, manage your work. Or uh, ADU or whatever, (laughs) right? Work does not equal to product. Product is a product. Let me talk about what is a product. When we think about product, it's a continuous thing, right? When you talk about roadmap, it's a future. You don't say this is my past six month roadmap. No, that's what you <laughs> did in past six months, right? So when you talk about roadmap, it's not product management is more than roadmap, communication and a creation, right? Roadmap is about a future. Roadmap is about possibility. And then you then let's say you go through all the design process, you create a roadmap. You have the deliver to it. And when the work happens, then obviously you make some progress. Did it drive the outcome you try to drive? Did it affect the number you want to? Yes or no? Did you spend more resources, aka your ROI of the product, all of a sudden become a bad because you spent 10x the resource on your product. You never managed that. Then that's not good product management, right? So the, the roadmap is only one part of the product, which is moving from this point on onwards. What about the backwards? That... If you have a product, the source of your truth of your product I have to also think about uh, what happened in the past. So your whole product portfolio has to be past, current, and the future, more than just you know, a list of things you wanted to do, right? So that's that's the third element of it. So then the fourth part, talking about A uh, LM and, and AI and and and, uh, and the product management things, right? The ability to explain is extremely important. So it's funny you say that. I mean, you know, people talking about AI stuff for a long time, but it just become a big thing. But we were doing this for like ever, even at PayPal, when we use AI to detect fraud. My last company actually was an AI company that we built models to, to make decisions, right? Decide on. So one of the big thing we did was to make it explainable. Yep. Because when you threw out a score, regardless of LMA or others, right? When you just throw, uh, throw out a score, nobody can understand and learn. And, and how do you make a decision around that? So the same thing, right? So if you really think about a thought process of product management, it is to be able to explain. And then the better you can explain and articulate, the better it is actually making your decision. Because I can say, oh, you're missing this input points. And then you over-index on the other. Because, you know, I think about models. They're always like, what are the inputs coming in? How do you uh, feature engineering different things, right? So, these other things do coming into your decision, and, and, and ultimately in the future, you can build into it. Because it's, it's funny, Dragon Ball is being an AI first product since day one. We never just go around to say this, this, because that's just a tooling to help you to build product, right? So, all those input variables have to come in, and then what kind of strategy you're going to apply, and how we can create a possibility of a future roadmaps, a number of them. And then you will say, it doesn't make sense. This is missing something. We'll come back to change it. So anyway, I kind of touched upon a number of things, but in the end is to say that decision process of product management is multifaceted. And bring in the factor and then make it, quote-unquote, on paper. is critical for you to make a good decision, communicate decision to get buy-in, and the story will be based on the factors you want to include in your story to the audience that are relevant.
0: Now, you say that Dragon Ball has been AI from the start, but let's just be clear. I'm assuming that you've also now been putting loads of chat GPT-style functionality into it because everyone is now. Or have you managed to resist that temptation? Like, How are you using the new wave of AI to help turbocharge some of that stuff?
1: So I would say... As a product leader, so first of all, we do incorporate ChatGPT and well, actually I would say OpenAI in more particular in a number of things, including onboarding, including some of the data analytics on, you know, obviously product managers have to process a lot of inputs and those are no brainer, can be baked into it, right? And then you also have to figure out how that you actually use it, incorporate it into the way, like because it's just one of the possibilities amongst the others. So how do you how do you look at the data? How do you analyze to say is the input data same level of fidelity you can all trust, or your data itself is bad? So garbage in, garbage out. So that kind of stuff we also have to build into it. So when you have a product, it's not just a superficial, right? So there's a lot of people who never done AI before. They're like, okay, put open OpenAI, dump some of the stuff, or get something. Do you trust it? How do you know you get a good data? When you have all the customer feedback, are they the right customer? Do they give you feedback you do? Can you read on surface level? So we take into consideration all of that so that we don't just kind of, oh, put it in, you can write in examples, make your write easier. Guess what? Sure, that's good, but it's just gimmick, right? You have to go to the next level to say, how that truly help you to do what we do, which is make better decisions, understand where things are. But I would also say is, you know, as product manager, product leader, you have to be curious on what's available, what talk technology is there, and how you can incorporate that into it, right? So if you just say, oh, AI is not going to work, it's not ready, that is pretty put your head in the sand. You're, you can be <laughs> a good product leader. You have to understand what is available. Then you also have to be able to understand the technology, understand where you are, understand what you try to get to, and then figure out what piece of that can be put it into a truly add value. And then today, a lot of times, like if you cannot articulate, like sure, most of the companies so far we've seen is like they plug it in and they give you some superficial stuff, give you a summary, and there are even tools to say, oh, you can plug in, we create a roadmap for you. Really? How do you?
0: <laughs>
1: I, I literally have people say, "I can get all the feedback that come in, and then I can put a sales number to it, and then create a roadmap for me." I I said, "Well, let's put AI on the side. Would you do that as a product management best practice? You won't. So <laughs> then, the AI doesn't. You do bad things around things very very fast. This is probably even worse. You'd be really really worried, right? So you have to figure it out." What piece of that technology you can use, right? You have to make sure the data come in, the data is representative of what you need. If not, how do you augment that? Augment data is a big part of it, right? And what is information you trust? Then after that, do you just put it into life? And how do you compare to existing comparison? How do you use your decision to train the data and so that you have positive reinforcement? You have to think through on how to do it. So that's how we be thoughtful about it, right? So you can have the AI come in. We, you can define your product strategy. We can represent product strategy to you. And then based on the product strategy, we can do one click. We can do planning. We can do scenarios. You have opportunity to evaluate and then make augmentation. Then you say, okay, here is going to be our, our roadmap. We're not just take it from there. So that end-to-end need to come into play.
0: No, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that I've reflected on with regards to, for example, ChatGPT and to your point about like just Automatically creating a roadmap based on a prompt, for example, like I've never seen so far at least one roadmap or strategy or vision come out of ChatGPT. You know, I play with it all the time. I've got a paid account. I I love gpt but I've never seen it come out with a like a fully baked strategy just based on a few prompts. Or like you, know, you go to it and you say, Hey, give me a like, what would you do if you were Blockbuster back in the 2000s or whatever, and and like you think maybe it'll come up with something amazing, but it never does. It always just comes up with stuff that you probably would have thought of anyway. So I do think that that point around like using it for what it's good for and, and trying to make sure whether you can trust the well both the inputs and the outputs is really super valid.
1: Right, right. I think in the end is this, right? I would say I think in the future like look, today nobody does fraud manually, right? But the manual reinforcement is always required. So how do you make the fraud system detection system better is because you have to lay out a model. So obviously you have this unsupervised learning, just find patterns and stuff. Sure, you can do that. You should also just say, how do I even know the decisions is made? You have, for you to understand that, it's still trying to figure out the inputs and the variables. So the same thing for, for you make a product roadmap. You should say, how do I make prioritization decisions? So quote, unquote, I lay out the variables and inputs and in those. And those can help you to build model. And then you can compare that with the unsupervised and then you will compare those two to say, okay, are they similar enough? By you have a two ways plus the manual, you can do the reinforcement. And then you can say ultimately it will help you tremendously speed up processing information and do different analysis on the ROIs, the resourcing and tracking and balancing, right? And that's just it's it's just a collaboration. So we call it we call it it's assist, right? We call it assist. So over time, you can get better and better. There's no magic bullet. In the end, if, if all the model works, then this world just have one outcome, right? Because, you know, all system, all inputs the same, others the same. You get one outcome. It's, it's a tremendously boring world. And there's no winning.
0: Well, that'll take people down a couple of pegs or two when they keep trying to slap AI into their products anyway. But, you know, hopefully people will do what you do and do it thoughtfully. But back to portfolio management. So portfolio management, I mean, obviously we talked just now about, the idea that even in relatively small products that you're looking at you know, potentially that being a portfolio. Now, I guess we could argue, for example, that as we said with this product that we're recording on now, you're not really going to trade off necessarily registration versus, well, maybe, maybe you do. Who knows? I, I guess it just depends on on the product. But it still feels like portfolio as a word and as a concept naturally in people's heads feels a lot more like there's a few things, right? There's a few different product lines or something like that that then starts to feel like, hmm, maybe there's going to be a bit more coordination needed. There's more dependency management, all of the stuff that you have to do as your landscape gets a little bit more complicated. And then you might even start to think about those magic words of product operations. I know you've worked in product operations yourself. uh, And maybe not everyone knows, but the queen of product operations, Melissa Perry, is on your board. So, Obviously, you live and breathe or have lived and breathed this stuff, and you have great kind of insight into that from, from Melissa, and I'm sure other people too. So how do you see product operations as supporting this general concept of portfolio management these days?
1: Um, really, really good question. So I want to talk about two interesting concepts. Number one is product operations, is they exist basically twins of product management. The day you have product management, you day have product operations. Let me explain to you why. Product operations, not as a role, product operations as a type of the things that you are going to do, right? Yep. Just like a scrum team may not have a dedicated scrum master, but someone is doing that job. So today we don't have a scrum master in scrum team for the most part. It comes to the point where people can do it with the right tooling, right? But that is a, it's, it's type of the things you do. So product operations is any everything beyond just product management that we think about it. So if you're a product manager in a small company, like one company, product, uh, one product manager in a company, you have to talk to customers, you have to design product, and all that stuff finds so our kind of core product management, obviously design, working with the engineering team, and so on. You also have to educate sales, what this product does, how do you learn, and the sales come to you, customer success come to you, they have bugs, they have all that stuff, how we do it guess what? This is this is not a quote-unquote core product thing. It's a, it's a little peripheral, right? You have to work on that. You have to create reports. And then you, oh yeah, the, the product management process is not working very well. That The, the intake is not working well. We don't have a template. And then all our PRDs are different. So all these things about be, making product management efficient, making the best practice at your fingertip that every product manager does and, and then let's say you go from a one product manager to a team of, uh, you know, four or five PMs with a manager or director, and that person play heavily on that role. Onboarding, training, templates, and measure everyone, measure product, because the PMs will focus on product, their own segments of things, right? So product operations always existed. It's just make it from a, a, one of the many has a PM play into a person play most of his head. It's something that people still wrap their heads around. It's how much I give to that person versus us. But it's very simple, right? In a sales organization, you have someone called a sales ops. Mm-hmm. When you have two salespeople, you don't need it. But someone has to play that role. When you have 10 salespeople, you're going to need a sales ops person. Just to keep everything running, be efficient, best practice learned, and tooling and reporting. Because if you have every salesperson to do that job, who's going to be on the street to sell product? So so right. So <laughs> product operation is just the specialization of things that everyone else do. But the product operation duties exist the day product management come into play. Unless you don't bring product to market, there's no customer. Fine, you just you know go to your business analysts who are working with engineers. As soon as the product management become a business function that would affect the business and that customers, product operations is required with the rest of the organization. Right so that's the first part yep the second part of that is if you are now we move from product operations from a type of work you do to a individual type of role that is if you are product ops and you don't know portfolio management let me say it in a very harsh way you should be fired right you just don't know your job
0: <laughs> I'm sure there's a few people uh, crossing their cups at this point, but how do you uh Justify that harsh statement. Right.
1: If you have a product ops, your primary job is to make sure, so just, it's very important. Your primary job is not make PM happy. Your primary job is not become their assistant. (laughs) Your primary job is not to make sales to get your material. These are all involved, but your primary job is to make sure your product team is going to deliver the best business and a customer outcome possible, right? That is your goal. If you have four product managers and they have you come in and your product, four product managers are not better at deliver better outcome, deliver more outcome, you failed. Like you shouldn't be, you're not babysitter, right? So the product ops jobs are, are inherently actually more senior and strategic than sometimes you would argue product managers because you have to look at a one level higher you're actually running you're operating right that's why product ops a lot of times the right-hand person for cpo similarly to sales ops you're a right-hand person to the revenue If a sales ops job is not making the sales team deliver more revenue that person shouldn't exist right that role just doesn't exist so same thing for product ops your jobs to make sure your product team actually deliver more because you have them to be efficient, you give them the data, you bring the product to market better through working with it cross-functionally, you make sure strategic alignment, make sure resources are allocated correctly. And that's very interesting because I've seen head of product became product ops. And a lot of times you have a VP of strategy and operations. And what they do is exactly like it's orchestrating the goals and strategy and roadmaps and execution all in one place, right? So that is portfolio management. Portfolio management is exactly that. It's where do you invest? How much you take bets? How much you take on double down? How much you take down in cost management? These are that. Not a single product manager can raise my hand and say, look, my product's is not important. Just just take all my resource away. Never. <laughs> but it is the product leaders and the product ops job to say, here's our goals. Here's all our initiative wanting wanted to do. Guess what? These areas need a lot more attention because it's just messed up, right? And we need to move these resources from that team to here, or this team gonna help to drive that outcome. So either way, if you don't think about portfolio management as a product ops and you only think about a oh, process and delivery, you're failing. You're not at, you're not doing your job. And that's where I created portfolio management at PayPal, way back. Because when you have all these competing roadmap item, all this initiative, how do you decide, right? Do I need to invest in U.S. market optimization that's millions of dollars? Do I need to go to Brazil, which has no revenue? Well, if you don't go to Brazil, you will never have revenue. And you can optimize U.S., but then you don't have... Those are the portfolio-level decisions.
0: Well, one of the things that you talk about, and I saw, I think on the website, and I think also on LinkedIn, that you talk about when it comes to making portfolio decisions and like how to, you know, you talk about like how to do the trade-offs and stuff. And you mentioned it earlier, this idea about return on investment, ROI on initiatives. But you say that you shouldn't be using ROI anymore. Anyway, you should be using something called MOAR, more metrics over available resources. Now, I hadn't seen that before, and I don't know if that's just because I've not worked in portfolio management or if it's something that you created. But I guess it'd be great to understand, firstly, I guess, what's wrong with using ROI, which is a fairly kind of standard, classic thing that people would tend to do, and also what this more stuff is all about.
1: Right. A really good question. So um, this is actually coming from a real life. Um, The story was, you know, at PayPal a long time ago. So that's probably, okay, public, like I talked to, you know, obviously we have big initiatives and then we want to talk to a CFO to say we need, you know, we need resources to do this initiative. But obviously CSO, CFO talk, right? What is the ROI on this? So was for this year and next year. So I said this year, no ROI and next year, maybe we get what? I get no ROI this year, we can't invest in it. I said, look, you have the money, you're going to hire engineers and then you're going to build a product and you bring product to market. That's the end of the year. Then I don't like this year's investment returns next year, right? And then the other part of that is when you have things return, how do I know this one is successful? As I shared this example earlier, Brazil would never win compared to US. So you have to tie strategy to it. If you just do ROI, you, I would never have innovation, right? Because innovation never yield ROI. So I have to think about is it the metric that is important to us, and that metric reflects strategy. And a strategy should determine investment, not the cash, because cash has a horizon differently, right? So the idea is this. As a product leader, a product manager, when you try to prioritize things, you can convert everything to dollar, then that will not justify why you're going to work on this versus this, because some things clearly has no dollar value, number one. Number two, as a product manager, you're not dealing with having dollar to hire people. You're dealing with the resources. When you have a data science and a mobile engineer, guess what? They are not the same. When I have an initiative that requires mobile engineer, but I run out of a mobile engineer, that doesn't mean I cannot run initiative that could use data scientists because they're available. So even though quote-unquote something has a lower ROI, but then they have a higher opportunity cost and I put it over there with available resources I can generate more outcome in a different flavors, right? So as every single product manager, we don't really have a direct influence on both the money coming into us because people hired, right? And the money coming out of that because there's the sales, there's the marketing, a lot of stuff. By the time that happened, it, it's kind of too far from us making decisions. So for us, more is a, you know, if you're familiar with the input metric and the output metric, right? Yep. So the output metric ultimately is all money. But what do you go from a business metric money to something that's something more tangible? So that's the input metric to the money is the metric over available resources. You can tie strategy and the resources in a way you can make product decisions that's, that's actually tangible, that's explainable. And you're not going to say, this one has lower ROI, but it's strategically more important and we can work on it. People say quantify strategically important. So then you still have to go say, right. So that's the first part. The second part of that is really important to that is, you know, when I was earlier in my career, I was very uh, naive. To, we have a hard time to prioritize things, right? I said, well, why can't we just get a list of things we wanted to do, go start our CPOs to say, hey, can you just go down the list and run one through the list and we'll be done, right? That seems very simple. But the point is not that, right? Because you have a different set of strategies. So they have to prioritize across different strategies. For example, that's number one. Number two, if you say, I'm going to prioritize the first thing on the list and I go to the next one on the list, what we didn't count is like the next five things on the list on the collective outcome is much better than the first thing, even though they use the same amount of resources, the first thing, or even less. But because you're looking at them one by one, you cannot make that kind of decision. That's where portfolio comes into play, is you look at many things, multiple things at once.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to think about there with regards to, I mean, prioritizing obviously is always tricky. It's traditionally tricky, and it's something that PMs struggle with all the time. I think also one of the things that I'm kind of against is this idea that you, for example, with some of these frameworks you going to divide by effort and do the smallest thing first because it's easier whereas you know going back to your point you're sitting there saying well yeah but actually first of all i guess there's an argument you just slice stuff down do smaller bits of that bigger thing because it's more impactful but also i like this idea of kind of combining things because together they're more than the sum of the parts right right,
1: right. exactly exactly so i think that you know look it is hard to be part of Manager, right? Because there's so many things coming into play. There's there's a lot of uh, things coming into play. I think the part is for you know good practice of product manager. Actually, I was talking to uh, someone I was mentoring about product management, right? So one of key thing is to think about. I think in a software, sometimes we we lose visibility on. Product management, people say, what is a good product manager? How is a good, great product manager is, right? Well, I, the, the idea is this. It's not that you create the best product. It's about how you deliver the most cost-effective way of the product. So cost-effectively could be the cost people have to pay, could be the time the user have to pay, could be the onboarding and uh, supporting and all that stuff, for the cost-effective. I mean, why? So in the real world, before software, <laughs> there was just, there were products exist product existed since the humankind, right? Let's look at Ferrari. Everyone say Ferrari is a good product. Is, a, is a Toyota a bad product? Compared to Ferrari, well, sure. So why would everyone just drive Ferrari? Nobody drive a Toyota, right? There's a cost effectiveness, right? And that's where software, sometimes we forget about that. To say, okay, is this product better than the other product? But you have to think about it. What is the use case? Who's going to pay for it? How much time are you going to spend? How big is scale? And that kind of the art of product management sometimes really get lost to say, it's always relative of your user, the time and the money and effort they're willing to put in to this product versus the thing they're going to get out of it. That's the first part. Second part all the time is it's about the real user. Let me use an example, right? I, I was talking to someone about how roadmap tool didn't get adoption. PMs are using it every day. I said, you really want a PM to fingers on the keyboard on the roadmap tool every day? Shouldn't they be working on the product, customers, and stuff, right? So that's the example of a Ferrari versus, let's say, a, a minivan, right? A minivan, the customer is not a driver, the customer is the people in the car. Ferrari, maybe it's a driver, right? That's a different persona. You don't like, so sometimes for a product tool, it's, it's about the information. The information, what you do is everyone else not using your tool the more you can eliminate the fingers on the keyboard the better it is right i think that's the part where the product management really to there's there's you know obviously digital or software product management for not as long but product management being around for like ever right sometimes you kind of have to think about like there is similarity in this function that will help you to actually guide decisions because i The part I I was talking to the PM is like, he's like, but this product cannot go live because it doesn't have it, you know, this is a better user experience. I said, well, if you look at all the things you wanted to do that your customer needs value, this part is broken. They're not getting this. So this one can be perfectly great, but your customer can get to where they need to get to. So then you have to fix this part and not focusing on this product area or features too much. The ROI or metric over available resources here. It doesn't really compare to this one, even though there are two different things. But for a user to finish a job, they need to get all these pieces together. Even then the main part of the job is not done well, right? And that's not good. You give Ferrari for family cars bad idea. It's a really, really bad idea, expensive and bad idea, right? You have to figure out what is your user, what are they trying to get to, and are they get there where they need to get to?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it really touches on another thing that we were going to talk about, we spoke about via email before this is your opinion about some of the common reasons that product teams in general don't deliver. And by deliver, I guess we're talking about what we've been talking about on this call, which is about like business impact and results. So what are some of the top reasons that you've seen either in your career or I guess, on your travels and talking to product teams all the time, people that are using your software, some of the reasons that you see product teams in general not delivering business impact?
1: Right. So we actually categorize the problem into three sets. So obviously, there's a tremendous amount of work talking about prioritization. So, and and that's obviously, you want to make sure you build the right thing. So we talk a lot about the more, we talk about business outcome, we talk about customers and price and so on. And that's still important now. The part that it's unique that not everyone's talking about it is that prioritize the right thing is not static, right? Because your business change, competition change, your customer change, technology available to them, things that used to be unique become a table stake and so forth. So how you do prioritization is tremendously important because if you don't prioritize well towards your goals, then you can't deliver towards your goals, right? The second part of that is actually, I'm not saying controversial, sometimes the product managers so much want to be visionary,
0: <laughs>
1: they are not on the ground. They are not delivered the product themselves. We talk a lot about output and outcome, the feature factories and so on, right? Because we want to make sure you do start with the outcome you want to get to. You don't start with the feature. However, deliver the feature is the first step. If you can deliver the feature, there's nothing to talk about. So I think we cannot forget, you cannot over index on the vision, a strategy and prioritization. And if you cannot deliver, that's the end of the story. So the deliverer has many, many parts. We know 90% of the teams have dependencies. And you cannot have an empowered team, you cannot deliver if you can solve the cross functional dependencies. Other product manager, technology dependencies, and sometimes even go-to-market dependencies. So you can't think about your product delivery as your own Scrum team. And there are other teams you have to work with. that are cross-functional. That go-to-market sometimes is also a blocker. If you're not trained, sales team not trained, marketing team doesn't have the material, the users not adopting your product because that part of delivery didn't happen. That's why product is so important. To, even your single person you have to think about how to go to the hands of the customer. Not in the hands of the customer, no outcome. But if you don't even shift the software to production, that also no outcome, right? So the delivery itself is tremendously important as well. Right? The third one is the product, it's just like everything else, right? It's a hypothesis. Do we deliver the strategy? Is our hypothesis work? So let's say we did the prioritization with the hypothesis, we have strategy, we get we gone through all the things to the hands of the customer, it didn't work. Sometimes just like that, right? Yep. And then how quickly you know it didn't work, how quickly you can make adjustment. And if you ship software six months or longer, you can get to that faster, right? That means like your six months of time, you're, you're not learning and, and growing. So how can you do smaller chunk of things and test and learn? And more importantly, adjust your roadmap while at the same time planning an alignment Multiple teams, multiple functions is actually not easy. So the faster and more efficient and better you can do cross-functional, cross-team alignment, the tracking and dependencies and delay and all that stuff, the more frequent you can ship your product, the more impactful you can make adjustment. So these three things that will have to come together and always going together, right? I need to build the right thing. I need to make sure I actually ship it. And I need to make sure I can evaluate, did it work? Did not work? And I make adjustment and something happened. Something happened. I got delayed, big customer, outage, legal, regulatory. Chat GPT came. We're all going to blow up our roadmap. What do we do? So that whole adjustment, the responsive part of things is, you know, I would say it's the next level, right? Build the right thing, ship it, and make sure you can make adjustment quickly.
0: All right. Now to make your life harder... You've been granted one wish by a genie, and the genie says, what do you want? And which of those three problems do you want to solve? And you can only solve one of them. Which one would you solve if you only had one shot? So,
1: depend on the state of the business.
0: Oh, it depends. It depends. depends. That's always a good answer.
1: If this question is for me right now, right, If if the problem is for me right now, I would, I would say, if the problem is for me right now, I, I would say something more of a sort of a deliver. Why I say deliver is because as a smaller company, you have limited resources. How can you deliver more efficiently to be able to drive the outcome you need? That's, that's really my challenge. Now, every company is different. As a product manager in the bigger company, let's say, you would say your control on what strategy you have is very different, right? And your control on the response time is also very different. You're limited by that. So in a bigger company, the ability to deliver product based on the strategy to the hands of the customers, being able to say, it drives the outcome that I was set out to deliver to, it's the most important thing. If you don't do that, you don't get promoted, right? You basically, you know, that's just being practical. If you're a smaller company, you're a CPO, right? Is... You know, as a CPO, the most important thing for you is to make sure your, your teams work on the right thing. A lot of times your teams work on the wrong thing and I'll see you come to you and say, you have 300 engineers and, you know, 50 PMs. What do you guys do? I don't see anything. You don't have a job, right? Basically. So as a CPO, the most important thing is to make sure your team work on the right thing and you rely on your team to deliver. So different people, different problem. And people cannot think about Some CPO was like, oh, I just, you know, my team is like, I'm going to empower my team. They can use the tool they want to use and they can, you can't, you can't offload your responsibility to your team. If if they don't have a guidance, they don't have a data, they don't make the right decision. You're not going to make your numbers. You last less than two years, right? You can't, you can't outsource and delegate strategy and the portfolio of investment decisions.
0: Well, if only there was a tool that enabled us to manage some of that stuff, but you know, maybe we'll find one one day. But speaking of which, where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about Dragon Boat or go deep into roadmaps and portfolio prioritization, get your advice on setting up a product top team, or maybe see if you still can give them any medical advice?
1: <laughs> I will take the last one out of the window, <laughs> but I can definitely provide some feedback on, on, on your product decisions and so on. Find me on LinkedIn, that's probably the easiest one, Becky Flint, so that's easy. If you want to know more about Dragon Ball, that's dragonboat.io. We provide a lot of uh, trainings, and uh, we have responsive product portfolio management trainings and certification, and we also have a very robust uh, product ops community on Slack. We have a uh, pretty robust Chief Product Officer CPO webinar series. So, and, and, you know, we would like to in- invite you come in to share some of your experience working in that space as well.
0: I would be delighted. Let's get your people talking to my people, although that won't be hard because my people is just me. It's a lonely life as a consultant, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's honest work, right?
1: Right.
0: But anyway, yeah, no, that sounds really great. And obviously I'll make sure to link all that information into the show notes, make sure we get the community stuff in there, make sure we get obviously uh, LinkedIn as well. and hopefully have a bunch of people heading across your direction and finding out how they can manage their portfolios more effectively. Well, that's been a fabulous chat. So obviously, really glad that we could spend some time together solving everyone's product management problems. Hopefully, uh, well, almost definitely from the sounds of it, we're going to stay in touch. But as for now, thanks for taking the time.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list, or subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.